0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Uh, If you're new here, we are continuing a sermon series that we began about a month ago on spiritual formation. And this morning, we're looking at the idea of being formed in community. And as we do that, we're going to read our New Testament reading from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather... Then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the lord be joyful in hope patient in affliction faithful in prayer share with the lord's people who are in need practice hospitality this is the word of the lord Earlier in the 20th century, the gray wolves, Canis lupus, were exterminated from most of the West, the United States, uh, by ranchers, farmers, hunters, trappers, and so forth. And it began the story of unintended consequences, because as that happened, populations of other animal species began to explode, and the entire ecosystem was changed. In the mid-90s, after years and years of political wrangling, the gray wolf was finally reintroduced little by little into areas in the northern Rocky Mountains, and particularly into Yellowstone National Park. After an absence of nearly 70 years, the beneficial influences of having the wolves in Yellowstone became almost immediately apparent. They primarily hunt elk and thus they began to control the exploding growth of that population. But they also changed the elk's behavior. Instead of munching their way through the valleys and the gorges where wolves could easily ambush them, they found other feeding grounds and shrubs and bushes and trees began to grow back, and therefore birds came back. The wolves also reduced the coyote population, and therefore there were more rice, um, rice, more mice and rodents. And so birds of prey and weasels uh, grew, began to grow back and come back. Beaver populations regrew because there were plants to eat. And astonishingly, over time, after reintroduction, ecologists began noticing that actually they began to, it, the, the rivers began to change. That riverbank erosion decreased so that rivers meandered less. They began to be deeper and more stable, and pools began to form. Well, why was this? It was because the vegetation recovered, stabilizing the riverbanks, and it began to alter the geography of the, the park itself. The entire ecosystem atrophied when one species was taken out of it. In fact, if any species is taken out of the ecosystem, then there are cascading effects up and down the ecosystem. You see, every participant, every species, is vital to this flourishing ecosystem. And as we talk about community, every participant is vital to a flourishing community. And a flourishing community is actually vital to each participant. In this passage, Paul is giving us a blueprint for a vital community and telling us not only how essential each member is to that community, but also how essential community is to each and every member. And we're going to look at how he tells us where to find your identity, your purpose, and your joy all within a flourishing community. Now, as we begin to do that, let me pray for us. Father, would you meet us here in this place? Would you meet us where we are? Some of us come into this room wondering if you are real. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Others are wounded. We've been hurt by a friend, by a parent, maybe even by a church leader. And we need your comfort. Some of us are carrying around anxieties about this next week, and others shame and regret about last week. And we need your calming presence. And this week we've seen death and destruction in Nepal. We've seen unrest and violence and hurt in Baltimore. And it's hard to know how to respond. It's difficult to know how to even think about these events. And certainly how to help. Father, for all of us this morning, would you give us Jesus? Would you let us see his beauty? Let us be drawn into his message. Let his story, let his teachings be good news for us today. Would you guide our time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, we see that in community, you can find your identity. You can find out who you really are. Now, reading this passage of Romans in isolation from the rest of Romans is like listening to just the finale of A Great Symphony, because Paul has been telling his readers for 11 chapters some of the most monumental foundational truths of Christianity. He's been talking about the nature of how humankind rebelled against God and how God then set out to rescue them. He's been talking about justification, that is how people are in right relationship with God, justification by grace through faith. He's been teaching the Roman church about what it means to be united in Christ. And then he says in verses 1 and 2, after all of this, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. After 11 chapters of intense theological teaching, he turns to, slightly, a little bit more of ethical application. What do you do now? How do you begin to work out these great truths in your everyday life? And he works out the implications of these doctrinal formulations, not in respect to individual lives, but to the community, to the us, to the church that is receiving this letter. He says that many people are becoming one living sacrifice. The gospel story, the rescue of God, all of these theological implications are meant to be lived out by one people who are united around these things. And if you're united to Christ, then you're united to one another. Not that you should be in union or in community, but that you are. Like it or not, that's the cost of membership. That's the cost of knowing Jesus is that you're now thrown into a community not really of your choosing. If you're seeking spiritual formation, then this will be most likely one of the most difficult aspects of your Christian journey. Not so much in theory. This sounds right, but very difficult in practice that the Christian life is profoundly relational. It's essentially relational. It's normatively relational. You come to know and love and serve Jesus, not in isolation, but in community. And then in fact, beyond that, you come to know yourself in community. Deborah Tannen is a linguistics professor at Georgetown, and she writes in her book, That's Not What I Meant. She says, we need to get close to each other to have a sense of community, to feel we're not alone in the world. But we also need to keep our distance from each other to preserve our independence so others don't impose on or engulf us. This duality reflects the human condition. We are individual and social creatures. We need each other. We need other people to survive, but we want to survive as individuals. I've argued a number of times from this pulpit that we desperately, in our most honest moments, we want to be known. We want people to see us. We want to be known for who we are. But it's difficult. It's scary. We love our independence. We want a connected life. We want to be known and loved, but it also makes us anxious. We'd rather people not see us in our weaknesses. We'd rather they not encroach upon our time or make demands upon us. But you see, it's embedded in community and not in isolation where we really do find our identity, where we find our genuine selves, where we find our truest humanity. Verse 3, he says that you're not to think more of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, this is rather obvious because... Most religious systems teach humility and warn against self-importance and pride. But the uniqueness of Christianity is why. Why should you not think of yourself more highly? Well, Paul says it's in view of God's mercy. You see, no one is a Christian because they were more wealthy than the person next to them. They were more beautiful. They were smarter. They figured things out. They're more accurate in their theological beliefs. None of this is what makes you a Christian. You're a Christian if you are today because of God's mercy. So don't think too highly of yourself. But you see, that's only one corruption. The other is on the other side. Don't think too lowly either. Think of yourself, Paul says, with sober judgment. Think accurately. Think truthfully about yourself. Believe what God says about you in the gospel. Not only do you need God's rescue, not only do you need mercy, but you were created with love and delight and dignity. You are, if you're a Christian, a son or daughter of God. Christian traditions that find their rootage in the Reformation are often really good at affirming one of those and maybe not so good at affirming the other. We're really good at affirming the need for rescue, the sinfulness of humanity, that we are unfit to stand before a holy God, and thus we need grace. And it's absolutely true. But we're not so good at affirming the dignity, the wonder, the nobility, the beauty of the human person. We emphasize that we're unworthy of God's salvation to the extent that we come to believe at times that we have no worth at all. We see this a little bit in some of the hymns that we sing, some great hymns, even Amazing Grace. John Newton says that this grace saved such a wretch as I. Now, he was a slave trader, so maybe that does fit. But we also see Isaac Watts's hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? It's a great hymn, but it's going just a little bit too far. You understand what they're getting at. And there's a kernel of truth in that that's important to realize that compared with the holiness of God, that all my good works are absolutely filthy rags. Or what Paul characterizes in another place, a word that I'm not going to repeat because I would get in trouble. You see, the Apostle Paul can cuss in his letters, but if I did, I would get letters. Paul says our good works are like dung, they're worthless, but he doesn't say you are. He doesn't say you are worthless. Constantly focusing upon our sin, constantly focusing focusing upon how bad we are can be as self-indulgent and self-focused as those who deal with the more obvious symptoms of pride. C.S. Lewis threads this needle, I think, by saying that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's such a subtle, but it's a critical distinction. You see, the gospel is not a call to self-esteem and constant self-flagellation. Instead, it's a call out of selfishness and out of isolation and into community. Instead, don't think of yourself more highly, don't think of yourself too lowly, but think of yourself in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. And here, measure is not an amount of faith. You see, that would invite comparison, the very thing that Paul is trying to undermine. You have this amount and I have this amount. Instead, he's saying standard or measure where Everyone in the church has exactly the same. Faith, that is, is faith in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for you. That's the standard. That's the measure. And everyone, if they're in the church, has that faith. You see, if that's the measure, if that's our standard, then our opinion of ourselves doesn't fluctuate up and down based upon the whims of ego or based upon the perception of others. We're stable. We have an identity that's secure. We know who we are. We find our true humanity. Community is, is, should be, and this is what we're working on here as a church, spiritual formation, we're growing into this. Community, the church itself, should be a vibrant life-giving place where people are free to be themselves, where people are free to be in process, where people are free to discover themselves, to see their sin, to confess it, and be restored. And that happens before God, and that happens among His people, among one, each, and, each one here. But secondly, not only do we find out who we are, find our identity, but we also find our purpose in community. He says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. Every body part, every member is essential if the church is going to achieve its mission, its vision, if the church is going to be a healing place for people that show up, every member is important. Every member has a role to play. Wolves, elks, rodents, fish, beavers, vegetation, all are necessary for the ecosystem to function properly. Actually, we don't need wolves in the church, but you get my point. Now, Here's the challenge, because if a member won't be inconvenienced, won't sacrifice, won't be around uncomfortable people, they are, in effect, subtracting themselves out of the ecosystem, out of community, and the entire community suffers because of it. If a person severs ties with their community at the slightest propagation, if a person harbors anger and won't forgive other people, Then other people are forced to walk on eggshells around them, hoping not to overturn the apple cart. And they're then unwilling to let their guards down, to let themselves be seen, to take their mask off. Whether you like it or not, if you're a Christian, you're connected to the body and your life affects other people. Your life affects the church. But you see, the call to community and the call to overturn that sort of reality is not just avoiding a negative, but there's a real positive too, a positive to pursue. There's not only a challenge, but there's hope that the church is meant to be a model community where people of different nationalities, people very different from one another, different racial, ethnic groups, different socioeconomic groups are not only existing together, but they're reconciled together. They move towards one another. They have a common purpose that differences are relativized because everyone in the church has Jesus as their King and Savior. That's what's most important about them, that that's where their identity comes from. And all of these other differences become relativized and much more minor. But what is church? What is the church's history? It's not very good. We sever ties at the slightest provocation, not just individuals leaving the church, but entire churches splitting because what unites us together in those situations is the notion of theological correctness. That our branch over here is more theological, theologically correct than these people, so I need to go and form another church. And then those people begin to divide and sever again. And instead of being united around the person of Jesus and what he's doing, we're united around our own sense of collective theological intelligence and correctness. It's not healthy, and it's not good news. It's not what the world needs. It's not what people outside of these doors are looking for. There's got to be a higher cost of being in community uh, with one another than just coexistence based upon agreement. Community is tested. In fact, our faith is tested when there's disagreement when we don't see all eye-to-eye on the secondary and tertiary things, that's when your community is really tested. Is it a real gospel-centered, Christ-centered community, or is it founded upon theological agreement, which is artificial and always changing? Community is tested when people who are different from you are invited in when people that aren't as theologically correct as you have a seat right next to you and come to this table. You see, what did Paul say? Each member belongs to one another. If you're still awake, if you're still paying attention, this should cause a crisis of faith for us. Every member belongs to each other. If you really believe this, it changes Why you show up on Sunday morning. It changes what we do in worship. It changes your community group. It changes what does membership look like and why be a member. Every member belongs to every other. You must give up your demands that church be fashioned in your own image. You must give up your individualized vision of what you want your community group to be, your dreams of what your church should be doing and should look like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said famously in his book Life Together, which I commend to you as an extended uh, read about church community, he says, He who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. And he enters the community of Christians with his demands. He sets up his own law and judges the brethren and even God himself accordingly. You see what? Paul is saying what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying is that you belong to the community not the other way around and then verses six through eight we have different gifts and that's a good thing we have different gifts according to the grace given us if your gift is prophesying, and you heard me read it earlier he gives us a number of different gifts that are not exhaustive but should be seen in any worshiping body What is he doing here? He's presuming a variety of gifts and thus a variety of passions, of perspectives, of interests, of ways of going about life. Now, the point that I was making is that in community, you can find your purpose, and this is true in that serving in community, in your giftedness, you're doing exactly what God has made you to do you're being exactly the person that God has made you to be when you know your gift into to this and you you settle into that and it becomes a gift to the church and a gift to those outside that's your purpose that's what you've been made to do so in community you find not just your identity but also your purpose now maybe being a part of the church is like crash landing on a strange island there's Weird people living there. There's people with vastly different backgrounds that are learning to live together. Is it too late to do a lost illustration? All these people are thrown into a scenario where they have to do life with people not of their choosing. They can't control the community. They can't control who comes in and participates. But instead... Everyone is important. Everyone has something unique to contribute. You can't hide in isolation anymore, but they find that in that situation, in that new community, it's there that their gift is actually valued and utilized. And then finally, third point, in community is where you find joy. It's where you find lasting happiness. Now, verse 8 concludes in a rather strange way because he's giving us a series of sort of do commands. Here's what you should do in light of these great theological truths that I shared with you. Now go and live this way. But then he ends it with a, a feel command, a pathos command. Here's what you are to feel inside as you do those things. If your gift is showing mercy, do it cheerfully. It's one thing to, you know, sort of just do it. Just make ourselves follow the law. Make ourselves follow the commands. Make ourselves show up. Make ourselves go down to the rescue mission. Make ourselves show mercy. That's one thing. It's another thing to where it gives us passion to do so. It gives us delight. It gives us laughter. It gives us joy. This Greek word is the word that we get our English word hilarity from. Not just cheery, but laughing, deep satisfaction, great joy. And the constant refrain in the Bible is that lasting foundational joy is found not when we serve ourselves in our own interest and protect our interest, but when we serve someone else and when we protect their interest, when we give them mercy Joy comes when that's happening. And if you think of it, of course that's true. Because you're made in the image of God. And that's what makes Him happy. That's what gives Him delight. You find joy in the same things that He does. And when you pursue your joy in self-protection and in seeking your own interest, you're living contrary to the very way that God has wired you and made you to be. And so then it's only logical that we don't find lasting joy and happiness, but only momentary. It doesn't come naturally, but the path to true, true happiness, to true joy, is to consider ourselves, our time, our gifts, our resources, our money, as entrusted to us to serve someone else, to serve the interests of the body, to serve the world. And this, friends, is actually spiritual formation because what is ultimately spiritual formation? It's growing to be more Christ-like. And so when our lives become reordered to where we're pursuing the loves and the joys and the benefits of others, we are imaging Christ. We are living more like Him. And what did He do? He sacrificed joyfully for you. You see, Jesus looks at the cross, it tells us in Hebrews, and for the joy set before him, he endures the cross. Maybe if you're looking in from the outside this morning, you consider the church as rather dour, rather lifeless, rather stern, rather law-giving and law-oriented and rule-following. But what does it tell us about the law-giver, the rule-giver, is that he came and gave His life for you out of joy, with great laughter, with great smile on His face, that He thought of you and endured the cross so that you could have great joy. And you see, a, a person in the church, a church as a whole, a group leader, will, who gets this, who understands this, they begin to bestow mercy cheerfully because they remember the mercy that they have been given. They serve, they teach, they encourage, they govern, they lead, they show mercy, realizing that it can't be done out of compulsion or guilt, maybe for a while, but only lastingly because of an interest to be like Jesus and to experience more joy for themselves, to be happy. A Christian community, a small group or a church is not one that functions well mechanically, necessarily but one that gets the gospel and serves cheerfully and you only give mercy really in a lasting way to the extent that you see yourself as having received mercy and to that extent you can employ your gifts you can give your life away with profound gladness or in other words in community you can find joy let's pray lord jesus this is hard to believe we, we don't want it to be true because it means that it costs us to be a part of your church. It costs us to grow spiritually. We would rather grow spiritually with little effort, with little change, and just change around the edges. But we believe, Father, that what the Gospel calls us to do, what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do is to not change around the edges, but change from the inside out, to change foundationally, And Lord, I pray that you would enable that to happen to us as a church and as individuals, that we would make ourselves available to the change that you want to bring forth in our lives. We know you want it. Help us to want it. Help us to respond. Lord, we pray, make us like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.